Often Chomsky is introduced as someone who exemplifies the Quaker uh, adage of speaking truth to power. He actually takes exception uh, to that. He says the powerful already know what's going on. It's the people who need to hear the truth. And now celebrating 25 years of KGNU, please welcome Noam Chomsky. things I've learned from uh, many years of not being a charismatic speaker is that my voice doesn't carry very well. So tell me if you can hear me before I... Okay? Yeah. Uh, well, um, we're all aware that uh, right at this moment, uh, bodies are being torn to shreds by infernal weapons. Uh, unknown numbers of people who's, uh, who have already been driven to the uh, edge of survival by a decade of murderous sanctions, uh, may be facing uh, starvation and slow death. Uh, under these circumstances, it's not very easy to uh, step back and uh, try to ask uh, why all this is happening, uh, where it's likely to go and uh, what we can do to shape the future. Uh, but uh, that's what I want to try to do. Uh, about the last question, what we can do to shape the future, the answer is straightforward, uh, quite a lot. In fact, there's no one who, anywhere who can do as much as we can. We're uniquely privileged. Uh, we have uh, unusual uh, freedom. Uh, that's not uh, a gift. Uh, from on high. It's a legacy that was won by uh, centuries of uh, constant, uh, dedicated struggle, and that's really the answer to what we can do. Pay attention to the legacy and carry it forward. Uh, privilege uh, and advantages uh, confer responsibility. Uh, that uh, should be truism. Uh, what comes next is uh, hard, though, uh, personal choices. Uh, one choice is to face the responsibility. Not easy, though a lot easier than it is in other countries, other places, not as privileged as we are. Now, the other choice is to shirk the responsibility and uh, hand the future over to be determined by uh, forces that uh, we can be sure are not uh, benign. Well, many people in the world, uh, probably the vast majority as far as we know, are hoping and probably desperately hoping that we will uh, make the first choice, face the responsibility. And they view with dread the consequences if we do not, uh, if we do not act to control what they see uh, as a juggernaut that's uh, uh, they regard as the greatest threat to peace in the world, and these days threat to peace means 
literally threat to survival. Well, uh, not everyone is dismayed. Uh, so take Osama bin Laden. If he's alive somewhere, I'm sure he's enjoying mightily uh, the scenes that are portrayed uh, in one way on television here and in a different way by uh, correspondents and commentators who are not uh, embedded uh, within the uh, invading system. Uh, he's made it very clear what he wants. Uh, he wants a word of the death between the evil empire and the billions of people around the world, uh, and uh, uh, that's uh, what he's getting. Uh, the uh, political, even before the invasion of Iraq, the U.S. political leadership uh, had inspired uh, an extraordinary level of uh, fear uh, throughout the world, not just the Arab and the Muslim world. Uh, since the invasion, the war that uh, the world has seen, not the one being portrayed here, uh, that war has uh, aroused a wave of revulsion that's actually becoming a serious concern uh, even to policymakers here, and it's uh, reaching the mainstream press. So just in the last few days, uh, the mainstream press has been publishing lead articles about it. Uh, they report, uh, give you some quotes, a growing hatred of America, uh, regarded as a violent uh, aggressor, a cruel aggressor that's relying on overwhelming force to crush anyone who's in its way, and worse still, seems to be rejoicing uh, in its ability to uh, destroy a defenseless enemy, uh, people uh, shooting with uh, uh, rusting rifles at uh, tanks and bombers. Uh, the rejoicing over that is not uh, inspiring great love around the world. Uh, furthermore, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein has been transformed by the invasion. Uh, he was regarded as a thug and a despot and hated, and he's becoming a, a hero. A brave, I'm quoting again, a brave and noble man. His, present, his uh, praises gush from the lips of Arabs from nearly every walk of life. That's quoting long-experienced American reporters in Jordan in this case. Uh, the director of the uh, uh, Center for Strategic Studies in Jordan says that without doubt Saddam now occupies the high moral ground across the Arab world. And he finds that very disturbing, thinks it's going to cause huge problems for countries like Jordan and Egypt, especially if there's any step towards democratization, because the voice of the people is heard. He knows what voice it's going to be. It's going to be the voice of uh, radical Islamists who are calling for a war uh, against America, and also secular nationalists who despise Saddam Hussein uh, but now admire him because he's standing up to the savage Americans, and no one else is. And uh, in death, uh, he's likely to become an even greater hero. Uh, there have been polls recently taken by American academics of uh, the Arab and the Arab world, and what they find is also a cause for a lot of concern, a huge majority uh, from uh, all over, all over, from Morocco to uh, uh, the Gulf states and Lebanon, 
a huge majority want uh, Islamic clergy to play a greater role in government. Uh, about 95% are convinced that the United States has no interest in the region beyond maintaining control over its oil. Uh, and incidentally, those concerns go back 50 years. That was the reason for what President Eisenhower called a campaign of hatred against us uh, in the Arab world uh, back in the mid late 1950s. Nothing new about it. Uh, they're convinced now, too, that the U.S. has no interest, and he incidentally and the, his staff concluded that that was correct. That is their interest. Uh, and they were supporting oppressive and uh, uh, governments and preventing development because of the interest in maintaining control over Middle East oil. That's the 1950s, not today. Uh, now, 95% are convinced that that's still the interest, along with uh, protecting Israeli power and uh, humiliating uh, Arabs and Muslims or anybody who's in the way, uh, relying on the fact that they have an overwhelming monopoly of violence. By now, they even speak of Saddam Hussein with reverence, even though they hate him as a murderous tyrant. Well, one recent story, and the big long story in the Washington Post about all this opens by saying, Something ominous is brewing that does not portend well for the United States. And that's an understatement. It does not. Now, that's quite an achievement by George W. Bush and his associates. Uh, these discussions are referring to the Arab and the Muslim world. Actually, that's the world that they claim to be liberating. Uh, in fact, it extends far beyond. It seems to be worldwide. It's not the last few days that it's gotten much more extreme. Uh, if somebody was watching all of this from outer space, uh, they might be led to believe that uh, George Bush was uh, embedded in the White House as an agent of Osama bin Laden. He's certainly acting that way. Uh, well, you know, we can... You know, un unfortunately, it's not a joke. It does not portend well. Uh, the consequences could be very grim. Well, we can. We got choices on this too. We can decide to live in a cocoon, the cocoon that's created by television and embedded commentators. Uh, we can admire ourselves for our magnificence, or we can look at what the world thinks and ask why. Uh, uh, that's you can. People have to decide for themselves what's the wisest uh, and most admirable course. I don't think it's a hard decision. Uh, well, as I said, uh, going back, uh, we can go, the, the uh, fear of the United States, of its leadership, this, particularly this political leadership, although it actually goes beyond, uh, that goes back well before the invasion of, uh, of Iraq. Uh, it was bad before, but within a year, uh, Bush and his advisors have turned the United States into a pariah state. It's greatly feared throughout the world. It's regarded as the greatest threat to world peace by substantial majorities. Uh, back this last October, the national press was forced to recognize, I'm quoting, that the world is more concerned about the unbridled use of American power than they are about the threat of Saddam Hussein. Actually, that's an understatement, no matter how much 
the world hates Saddam Hussein, it's only in the United States that he's feared. No one else regarded him as a threat, including his neighbors. They hate him, but they're not afraid of him. That's a special U.S. property. Uh, that's reached the point where the, the fear and concern over U.S. power has been featured in the national media recently, uh, cover stories in Newsweek and the Washington Post recently. Uh, the, there's a, one of the major uh, uh, polling centers, the research centers, this is the Pew Center, Pew Research Center, recently published a poll on the image of the United States around the world, Europe mainly. It's plummeted. It's particularly uh, Bush and his associates. In most places, it's still dissociated from the country, though there are some exceptions, like Poland and Turkey, where the country is feared and hated. Uh, but it'll follow. If they keep at it, it'll follow. It will be not them, but everyone. Uh, the uh, head of the uh, non-aligned movement, that's governments of roughly 80% of the world's population, former colonies, basically, uh, Prime Minister Mahathir of uh, Malaysia, who's very pro-American, you know, very much part of the whole uh, U.S. Uh, international economic project, what's absurdly called globalization, uh, he recently said that uh, uh, that uh, the United States today, under the current leadership, is more dangerous to the world than Hitler. Uh, that wasn't reported here. We want to stay in the cocoon, but it was reported elsewhere, like England. Uh, you want to get out of the cocoon, you should know that. Well, you look beyond, it gets uh, some ways even more remarkable. Um, you all know, I'm sure, that every year the World Economic Forum uh, has a meeting in, uh, usually in Davos, Switzerland. It's usually very upbeat and enthusiastic. Not this year. Uh, this year it was, uh, it was an atmosphere of what the press called gloom. The theme of the meeting last January was building trust. And the reason for that was that the World Economic Forum had just done a poll which they'd released uh, about trust and leadership around the world, and they'd found a sharp decline in trust. Uh, there was only one, they had various categories. Uh, the only category that had even a majority of, the slight majority of the population trusting them was uh, non-governmental organizations. Uh, right below them came the UN and spiritual and religious leaders. Below them were Western European leaders keep going down, you get the corporate managers, the very bottom uh, leaders of the United States. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Colin Powell was sent there by the administration as their emissary. Uh, he had a very rough time. He was bitterly condemned. The focus of the meeting was the coming war with Iraq, uh, which they were strongly opposed to, and they didn't, weren't by no means impressed with uh, Powell's uh, proclamation that the U.S. Uh, declares the sovereign right to use force as it wishes. Uh, it's going to lead, even if nobody's following. Didn't win a lot of uh, hearts and minds. Uh, this, remember, is the core of the international establishment. Uh, these are the people who the business press calls the masters of the universe. It includes uh, corporate executives who are paying uh, $30,000 each to attend. Uh, and the you know, major figures everywhere. That kind of opposition to 
of government policy is completely without precedent. And it extends right to the United States at the heart of the, uh, the elite opposition uh, to the political leadership is, again, extraordinary. The major foreign affairs journals, uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences and others, uh, popular opposition also has absolutely no precedent. There was an international Gallup poll that uh, wasn't reported here, again, preference for the cocoon last December. Uh, the results were pretty interesting. We'll run through them, but just one result, one, one question asked uh, had to do with the war that Bush and Blair and Powell and the rest are declaring and are now carrying out, uh, a war that they carry out uh, without any calling themselves the allies, but they're allied only in the sense that they're allied against uh, almost universal world opinion. Uh, the, uh, uh, coalition, the coalition forces, as the propaganda system calls them, a, a war carried out by them uh, didn't even barely reach 10% support in any of the countries polled. Uh, the opposition in Europe was greatest uh, in the countries that were lined, where the leadership was lining up with Washington uh, over the overwhelming opposition of their own population. Uh, that's incidentally being lauded here in a demonstration of hatred and contempt for democracy that also has no precedent. Uh, David was making jokes about France, but the reason for why France and Germany are so reviled uh, is that they're taking the governments are taking the position of the overwhelming majority of the population, and that's considered a crime. Uh, that. It's a pretty striking fact. The governments that are praised, what Rumsfeld calls the New Europe, uh, they're countries where the leadership is taking their orders from Crawford, Texas, and disregarding, you know, 90% of the population. Those are the good guys. Now, what this tells you about the attitude towards democracy among elites here is pretty astonishing. Uh, don't have to comment on it. It's, I'm sure you noticed that the biggest demonstrations uh, by far in February, mid-February, uh, were in the countries where the leadership was going along with the United States, uh, Italy and Spain. Uh, same figures are all, same right through Eastern Europe. So Hungary, for example, has also about 80 or 90 percent uh, opposition to the war under any circumstances. Uh, and the Latin America, of course, overwhelming opposition. There's, always overwhelming opposition there to U.S. military intervention, which they've had a little bit of experience with. Uh, the, uh, when the allies uh, had to have their summit meeting uh, in which they presented an ultimatum to the United Nations, and not to Iraq, they presented an ultimatum to the United Nations, Bush, Blair, Aznar, uh, saying, you follow us in 24 hours or else. Uh, where did they meet? Well, they, they couldn't meet in any country where there are people around. That's too dangerous. Uh, they met in a U.S. military base on an island. Uh, that's where you got to meet, like the World Trade Organization, which had to meet in Doha make, to make sure there's no demonstration, be surrounded by navies. Uh, that tells you a lot. Uh, well, it's, it's a real achievement, and you really have to ask how you know, let's say you're this 
Martian observer, how did Bush and his associates manage to make themselves the most feared and hated political leadership in the world, in fact, maybe ever, uh, shaming the country and ultimately endangering its people? How'd they do it? Well, you look back, uh, you can see how they did it. just without running through the whole story, just start last September because there was a big change then. Uh, last September, a lot of uh, important things happened, and they made an effect on world and U.S. opinion. The first and most important was the declaration in late September of the national security strategy. Uh, immediately and surprisingly, uh, it was harshly criticized in the main establishment uh, uh, international affairs journal, Foreign Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations, which they do it in sort of muted terms, but you could see the concern. Uh, It was called an imperial grand vision. Uh, The government announced a pretty remarkable doctrine. Basically, what it came down to is that the U.S. is going to uh, rule the world by force. That's the dimension in which it has overwhelming Dominance. The U.S. probably outspends the rest of the world combined in military force by now. Uh, it's uh, going to rule the world by force, and it's going to do it indefinitely. Uh, if the U.S. government perceives any potential challenge to its domination of the world, it's going to destroy it. Uh, that's uh, the doctrine that was announced. Uh, it's, sometimes, it's usually in the press it's called a doctrine of preemptive war. That's not what they announced. A preemptive war has a meaning. It means that if you're under attack, you know, you're under imminent threat of attack, like, uh, say, uh, remember uh, back in 1983, uh, the Russians were going to bomb us from an air base in Grenada. Well, okay, uh, say the Russian planes are in Grenada and they're flying to Florida about to bomb us, then a preemptive war would mean you're allowed to shoot them down. Uh, before they bomb, and maybe even bomb the threatening air base in Grenada. Uh, that's preemptive war. It has to be an imminent attack that's taking place. That's not what was proposed in September. Uh, what was proposed is uh, uh, that they can attack anybody they decide to call a potential threat. Uh, sometimes that's called preventive war, but even that's not fair because they're allowed to invent the threat. It's not preventing anything necessarily. That's the doctrine that was announced. Uh, The goal, to to quote somebody else, was to use force to prevent any challenge to the power, position, and prestige of the United States. And no legal issue arises uh, if the U.S. acts to prevent any such challenge. That's now the position of the rulers of the country that uh, outspends probably the rest of the world, combined in means of violence, or close to that. And it's now uh, forging new and very dangerous paths over near-unanimous world opposition. Uh, Most striking and dangerous of them is the development of lethal weaponry in space, which really does pose a threat to survival of the species. Well, I mentioned I was quoting someone else, uh, and it's important who it was. It was uh, Dean Acheson, a respected elder statesman, senior advisor of the Kennedy administration. That's what he said in 1963. 
uh, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, which almost led to terminal nuclear war. Uh, the roots of the missile crisis were a campaign of international terrorism that uh, the uh, Kennedy administration was carrying out again in order to carry out what's now called regime change in Cuba. And we know why. Uh, one of the part of the freedom that we've obtained, if we want to use it, is that we have unusual access to uh, uh, internal secret government documents. They get declassified. There's thousands of pages of them on this. We can choose to ignore them if we want, or we can look. And if we look, we find that the reasons for the campaign of international terrorism uh, were that the very existence of the Castro government is a successful challenge uh, to U.S. policies that go back 150 years. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it's 150 years of U.S. policy saying you follow our orders or else. And the existence of that regime was successful defiance of that. Uh, furthermore, it was regarded as a threat uh, because of the possible spread of the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands, which has great appeal to people in the region who uh, uh, suffer from similar forms of oppression. We've got to stop that. 150 years of policy tell us that. Well, that was the reason for the international terrorist campaign led right to the missile crisis, uh, almost nuclear war, just learned how close it was. After the crisis was over, the terrorist campaign was renewed uh, along with uh, economic strangulation. And right at that point, Dean Acheson informed the American Society of International Law that no legal issue arises in the case of a U.S. response to a challenge to its power, position, or prestige. Well, that's approximately the Bush Doctrine of September 1992. Uh, and uh, this is the opposite end of the political spectrum, remember. And that's important to know. We want to understand ourselves, remember what the political spectrum is. Well, why the uh, uh, shutters around the world and the foreign policy elite here in September, last September. Well, there's a reason. Uh, Acheson was describing policy, and it's true, that is policy. Uh, it's been so for a long time. But the national security strategy last September proclaimed it as official policy, and that's quite a difference, an important one. Actually, you want to think about this, it goes back beyond that. Uh, you can find the policy described uh, in the early stages of uh, uh, the Second World War, actually before the U.S. even entered it. Uh, that's the, there you can find a clear announced discussion of what's now called the Imperial Grand Strategy. So even before the U.S. entered the war, um, there were uh, study groups of high-level planners from the Council on Foreign Relations, kind of the foreign policy elite, and the State Department uh, trying to decide what to do in the post-war world. And they concluded that in the post-war world, uh, the United States must hold, I'm quoting it now, must hold unquestioned power and must act to ensure limitation of any exercise of sovereignty by states that interfere with U.S. global designs. Uh, that's the September national security strategy. And they also recognized 
that the foremost requirement to secure these ends is rapid fulfillment of a program of complete rearmament uh, that's a central component of an integrated policy to achieve military and economic supremacy for the United States. That's uh, 1940. Uh, at that time, those ambitions were limited to what they called the non-German world. They expected that Germany might win, win the European war, at least. And the non-German world was going to be organized under the United States rule as what they called a grand area that included the Western Hemisphere, the former British Empire, and the Far East. Well, shortly after that, uh, Russia uh, beat back the Nazi armies at Stalingrad, and it became fairly clear that Germany would ultimately be defeated, and these plans were then extended to include as much of Eurasia as possible, and they were implemented after the Second World War. They've been described since, as in Dean Acheson's comment, and now their official policy. Well, that's all important to know in a society that uh, really valued its freedom. Uh, you, I wouldn't have to be saying this. Everybody would have learned it in high school. Uh, these are really important things to know about ourselves. There's plenty more like it. Uh, well, let's go back to last September. Uh, one important development, uh, which did cause plenty of concern around the world, foreign policy elite here, was the proclamation of the national security strategy. Uh, something else happened in September. September was the opening of the political campaign for the midterm elections. Uh, and uh, that was uh, combined with an enormous propaganda campaign, which began to present uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, as an imminent threat to the survival of the United States, with insinuations that Iraq was responsible for the September 11th uh, attacks. Uh, Actually, if you look at this morning's uh, New York Times, uh, Carl Rove, who's George Bush's minder, as they call him in Iraq, uh, he, was, uh, he describes it this morning. He says the, the goal is that uh, in order to pursue the domestic agenda of the administration, it's necessary to frighten the population. Uh, you have to... Uh, make the population uh, feel that they have to uh, shelter under, uh, you know, behind the, uh, under the, uh, behind the powerful leader who's going to save them from destruction. You can do that. You can pursue your domestic agenda. Otherwise not. He's talking about what we have to do in the f what they're going to have to do in the future. But he also says, yeah, that's what they did uh, in the past. And that's correct. Uh, in September, uh, Condoleezza Rice showed up with her... Uh, uh, prediction that the next thing we're going to hear about uh, Saddam Hussein is a mushroom cloud. They're planning to destroy us. And then there came a series of outlandish lies repeated passionately by Bush and others, distributed quite uncritically by the media, and it had an immediate effect. Uh, you take a look at polls uh, by September after this campaign began, roughly 60% of the population believed it and continue to believe it. Sixty percent of the population, plus or minus, uh, believes that uh, Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat. They've got to keep repeating it to keep that level up. Uh, about half the population, by a couple of, about a month ago, it's probably higher now, 
uh, believe that uh, Iraq was responsible for the September 11th attack, that Iraqis were on the planes. Uh, those beliefs turn out to be highly correlated with support for the war, and it's understandable. If you think that Saddam Hussein's an imminent threat, already destroyed the World Trade Center, planning something new, maybe a nuclear bomb, yeah, then it's understandable that you'd want to do something to get rid of him. Uh, that's a remarkable achievement of government media propaganda. You have to bear in mind that this is unique to the United States. Nowhere else where anyone believes anything like this, uh, nor is it believed here by anybody who knows anything like CIA or foreign policy analysts. But it has been imposed on the population. Uh, and that's impressive. It's not the first time, but it's impressive. Uh, if you, uh, and f as far as it was aimed at the election, and for the election it just barely worked. Um, they barely managed to maintain control. Tens of thousands of votes, not much. Uh, and something similar is going to be for, uh, needed for the next election. That's what Rove says this morning. He says, for the next election, we've got to create an image of George Bush as a powerful leader, a savior, uh, who by then will be marching off uh, to slay some new dragons. So it's going to be something to do next year. Uh, well, for the guys in power, uh, the current administration, all of this is kind of reflexive. It's just second nature. Uh, remember that these is almost the same people who ran the country in the Reagan-Bush-1 administrations. They had 12 years to do it. It's uh, sort of astonishing when you look at, put yourself in the position of the Martian observer again, um, and recognize that it's just elementary sanity, if you want to figure out what these guys are up to, to ask what they did during their first tenure in power. It's 12 years, not ancient history. Uh, 1981 to 92, what'd they do? Well, it's interesting that it's almost never investigated. Uh, do a search and see how often people bring up what they did the first time around. Well, if you do it, you'll find that right now they're following almost exactly the same script uh, in detail. Uh, the first thing the Reaganites did when they came into uh, office in 1981, first thing they did was drive the country into a deep deficit. Bush administration did exactly the same thing. Uh, this time, the way they did it was uh, by a huge tax cut benefiting very tiny top percentage of the population and by the biggest increase in federal spending in 20 years, quoting the Wall Street Journal. But it's a fact, the biggest uh, increase in federal spending in 20 years, that goes to the rich, huge tax cut for the rich. Uh, well, that causes a problem, just as it did in the Reagan years. Uh, you've got a deficit, you have to have what's called fiscal responsibility. You know, long, gloomy faces from uh, the economic czars about fiscal responsibility. Fiscal responsibility means you've got to cut services for the population. You've got to cut benefits that help people. You keep the benefits to the rich. That's what the federal spending and the tax cut are about. Well, during the Reagan years, uh, that's exactly what was done, and it was harmful. To the, it was it was harmful even to economic growth, although it was some, but it was very harmful to the general population. It was 10 years of either stagnation or decline for most people. Uh, U.S. Uh, working hours went to the highest in the industrial world. Uh, 
for incomes either stagnated or declined, uh, working conditions declined. Uh, this was called a welcome development of transcendent importance by the Wall Street Journal, which tells you exactly what was going on. Well, it was highly unpopular, as you can imagine. There's a lot of mythology about Reagan's popularity. It's simply untrue. Uh, in fact, at the end, by 1992, he was ranked as the most unpopular living ex-president, uh, right next to Richard Nixon, well below Carter and, and uh, Ford. Uh, well, you know, how'd they stay in power? Pressing the panic button every year, just what they're doing now. So they started right off with, uh, it was recognized right away that Libya is a very convenient punching bag. It's completely defenseless. Everybody hates it. You can do what you want. Uh, so they started attacking Libya right away uh, and presenting Libya as a threat. In 1981, uh, uh, Reagan was... Uh, uh, hiding in the White House uh, because he had to be protected from Libyan hitmen who were wandering around the streets of Washington and nobody could do anything about him. They're going to kill our leader. Well, somehow he escaped. Uh, Libya was going to was trying to expel us from the world. He, he said nothing less than that. Uh, two years later came that air base in Grenada, which the Russians were going to use to bomb us. And then there was Nicaragua two days driving time from Harlingen, Texas. Remember that? Really close. And waving copies of Mein Kampf, uh, according to the Secretary of State. A real threat. You know. uh, I, uh, Reagan called a national emergency in 1985 to defend the country from the threat to the security of the United States posed by the government of Nicaragua. Uh, the Martian would be dying of laughter, I guess, but people here didn't laugh. Uh, the, uh, in fact, if you look at that, that was renewed annually right through the 80s. You take a look at it, it uh, uh, it's almost the same wording as the congressional resolution in October 19, 2002 about the threat of Saddam Hussein. Imminent threat to the security of the United States. You've got to do something. In the 1980s, it meant a terrorist war against Nicaragua. Ended up with a the U.S. had to defy the World Court. The Security Council continued, destroyed the country practically. The other countries even worse. Uh, in 1988, uh, George Bush was able to get elected, George Bush number one, but only by invoking the threat of uh, black uh, criminal rapists, Willie Horton. You remember that? That's how he got elected. Terrified everyone. Uh, there were crime frenzies, uh, drug frenzies, just on and on. Uh, the international policies then were the same as now. The Reagan administration came into office in 1981, declaring that a war on terror would be the focus of U.S. foreign policy, a war against uh, depraved opponents of um, civilization itself, and a return to barbarism in our time, on and on. And it ended up, it very quickly turned into a terrorist war. Uh, they devastated Central America, the Middle East. Uh, it was all over the world. The U.S. supported South Africa right through the 1980s. Uh, the Reagan administration had to find ways to get around congressional uh, legislation calling sanctions. They were able to increase trade and support for South Africa right to the end. Just in the Reagan years alone, South African 
depredations in the surrounding countries. In Angola and Mozambique, uh, killed about a million and a half people. It's not small. Uh, that's when ends up with Colin Powell, the moderate, the national security advisor. Uh, in 1988, the uh, uh, U.S. declared uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, African National Congress to be one of the more notorious terrorist organizations in the world. That's part of the reason for supporting the South African apartheid regime. In 1987, uh, December 1987, uh, the U.S. Uh, blocked, voted against, that means essentially vetoed, a general, the strongest UN resolution, General Assembly resolution, condemning terror in all its forms. It's the strongest resolution the UN has passed. U.S. voted against it. U.S. and Israel alone voted against it. The reason was it had a paragraph in it which said that though they condemn terrorism and have to do everything to stop it, nothing in this resolution uh, prevents uh, the people from struggling against uh, racist and colonialist regimes or foreign military occupation. And the U.S. doesn't accept that. Uh, we don't think people have a right to struggle against racist and colonialist regimes and foreign military occupation. Racist and colonialist regimes referred to South Africa. Uh, military occupation referred to Israel. Uh, the U.S. alone voted against it, Israel, reflexively. Accordingly, it's not reported. Uh, and it's not part of history, except that it is part of history. And it tells you a lot about what's going on. It's December 1987. Well, it continues like that. At that time, they were constrained. There was a deterrent. There's a limit on what you can do. The deterrent's gone. Uh, you go on to the national security strategy, uses... September 11th as a pretext. Uh, the pretext is used by states all over the world. Uh, the Russians immediately used it as a pretext for stepping up their really vicious terrorist atrocities in Chechnya, assuming correctly they'd get U.S. endorsement for it. Uh, China did the same. Uh, Israel did the same in the occupied territories. It's all over. Also, states all over the world, from the Central Asian uh, terrorist dictatorships that Bush backs to the more democratic countries all over the world. It was used as a pretext to discipline their own populations. Uh, we know what happened here. KGNU Boulder. Administration has made extraordinary claims, and they've been upheld by the courts uh, to, to a large extent. They've claimed the right to uh, uh, imprison people, including U.S. citizens, uh, without charge. Uh, without access to lawyers or family, uh, and to do so indefinitely uh, until the president declares that an emergency is over, which means executive authority. That's an astonishing claim. Uh, there, there, uh, George Bush uh, is supposed to have a, uh, a bust of Winston Churchill on his desk that was given to him by his friend Tony Blair. Uh, Churchill had some things to say about this might listen to them. He said, the power of the executive to cast a man into prison without formulating any charge known to the law and to deny him the judgment of his peers is in the highest degree odious and the foundation of all totalitarian government, whether Nazi or communist. That was... Uh, that's what uh, is being claimed 
and uh, implemented by the United States. Churchill said this in 1943. Uh, Britain was in very serious straits at that time. Uh, they were under attack by the most murderous uh, military force in history and came close to being destroyed. That's the moment at which Churchill declared that. And whatever you think about the threats to the United States, then nothing like that. And he's right. It is in the highest degree odious and the foundation of all totalitarian government, whether Nazi or communist uh, or Washington right now. But those are just plain facts. You know, take a look. And it's getting worse. Uh, there's a new uh, Justice Department proposal, which is being called Patriot II. It was secret, but it was leaked. It was leaked by somebody who didn't like it. Uh, and there have been a couple of reports about it in the press. You can actually read it. It's posted on the Internet. Uh, NYU law professor Jack Balkan, who wrote about it, says the following. Uh, there is no civil right, not even the precious right of citizenship, that this administration will not abuse to secure ever greater control over American life. And if you read the proposal, he's exactly right. Uh, it even grants the Justice Department the right to take away citizenship uh, just by inference, what they call inference, not any actual actions. They somehow infer from something they don't like uh, that you don't, they don't like you, they can take away your citizenship. Nothing's ever been claimed like that. That goes far beyond what Churchill described as in the highest degree odious. Well, you know, whether that's implemented or not is up to us. Uh, Alan Gilbert here has a recent book which he opens by quoting James Madison, uh, who warned uh, about those who seize upon dangers abroad to blind your eyes to dangers at home. Now, that rings pretty true, uh, worth thinking about. Well, September 11th was the pretext. National Security Council uh, security strategy was announced. Election campaign came along. Uh, the doctrine was announced, the doctrine of uh, war against anybody you don't like, preventive war. Uh, the purpose is to establish that as a norm of behavior, what international legal scholars will call a new norm in international law. But to establish a norm, you have to do more than declare it. Uh, you have to illustrate it. You have to carry it out. You've got to show that you're going to do it. Then it becomes a norm if you're a rich and powerful country, not if you're somebody else. Uh, well, how do you do it? You've got to pick a target. target has to meet several conditions. Uh, one condition is it has to be defenseless. You've got to make sure that you're going to have an overwhelming victory so you can rejoice over the destruction of people from a safe distance. Uh, secondly, uh, it's got to be important. So, like, there's no point going after, you know, Burundi or some place like that. It's got to be a place that matters. Okay, what state satisfies those two conditions? Completely defenseless uh, and very important. Well, that's Iraq. It's been utterly devastated by a decade of sanctions. It's the weakest country in the region, which is why it's not feared, no matter how much it's hated. Uh, even in Kuwait and Iran, which Saddam invaded, not feared. In fact, for the last five years, they've been trying to reintegrate it into the uh, regional system over strong U.S. objectives. 
It's the United States that fears it alone, just like it feared Nicaragua and Grenada and other demons. Uh, and it's extremely important. It has the second largest oil reserves in the world. Uh, uh, back as far back as 1945, uh, the State Department described uh, uh, Persian Gulf oil resources as, uh, in their words, a stupendous source of strategic power, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest material prizes in world history. Uh, ever since then, the U.S. has been determined to control it. It's a leading principle of foreign policy. Actually, it goes back before, but it was the British before. Uh, and it's understandable. You don't give away a stupendous source of strategic power and uh, one of the greatest material prizes in world history. Uh, it's important to recognize that that means control, not access. The U.S. didn't need the oil. In fact, it barely needs it today. To look at intelligence projections, they're expecting to rely on more secure uh, Atlantic Basin resources, Western Africa, West, West, Western Hemisphere. But they want to control it, just as they did after the Second World War. And there's a reason for that. If you control a stupendous source of strategic power, you control the world. That's a lever of world control. You have what... Uh, planners at the time called veto power over other countries. You can also set uh, prices and production levels within the range that you want, and you can make sure that the profits flow back into the right pockets. Uh, it's, uh, it is an enormous uh, to, to, main, to gain control over this resource and to have probably military bases there is a tremendous uh, achievement for world control. That's what you're aiming at. You, you hear, you read counter-arguments to this, and they're worth looking at. So it's argued that the can't be true because the costs of, the, of reconstruction are going to be greater than the profits that will be made. Well, you know, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't, but it's totally irrelevant. Uh, and the reason is because the costs of reconstruction are going to be paid by the taxpayer, by you. Uh, and the profits from the, are going to go right into the pockets of the energy corporations. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how they balance out. It's just another taxpayer subsidy to the rich. Uh, doesn't matter what the numbers are. Uh, so all the discussions are completely irrelevant. Uh, the construction, the profits will go to, you know, um, Bechtel Corporation or Dick Cheney's Halliburton Empire or one thing or another, uh, which will be... Uh, chosen to what will be called rebuild Iraq at taxpayer expense. Uh, that's part of the way in which you transfer wealth and power from the population to the rich. Uh, many ways, and that's one. Uh, is there another way to proceed at this point? Yeah, there sure is. Uh, the United States could pay reparations to Iraq. Uh, that's, that's, that would be proper. <laughs> and. Uh, Remember what it is. I mean, you know, you're not reading about it in the newspapers, but you all know it's reparations from 20 years of devastation of Iraq. First 10 years of support for Saddam Hussein, right through his worst atrocities. The guy's now in office. They didn't care about the atrocities. Continued to support him, uh, provide him with the means to develop weapons of mass destruction. They even said why they were doing it. It didn't have to do with the war with Iran. It continued after Iran. The reason was because of, as George Bush, number one, explained his administration, our duty to support American exporters. 
That's why we had to support Saddam Hussein after the gassing of the Kurds and everything else. And then they added the usual boilerplate about uh, Saddam Hussein being a source of stability and, uh, you know, we can help improve the human rights situation and so on. That went right up to the day of the invasion of Kuwait. First, first mistake, it didn't follow orders. Uh, the other crimes were fine. Then comes the war and ten and a decade of sanctions which have devastated the population, civilian population, and strengthened Saddam Hussein, and furthermore made the population more dependent on him. I mean, he's a murderous tyrant, but a very efficient one. He had a very efficient food distribution system which people were dependent on to stay alive. Uh, the World Food Organization says it's the best, uh, the most efficient uh, food distri distribution system they know of. They say they can't duplicate it even by half. You know, monster, but an efficient monster, not the first one in history. So it forced the population to be dependent on him. It devastated the civilian society, strengthened Saddam Hussein. Uh, that's one reason why he's still there. Otherwise, he'd probably have been overthrown by now. Remember that Saddam Hussein was not the only monster who was supported by the guys now in Washington. They had quite a quite an, string, an entourage that they collected. Uh, they were supporting, uh, among others, uh, Marcos and Duvalier and Suharto and uh, Mobutu, who was the first foreign leader invited to the Bush White House. They loved them so much. Uh, Ceausescu was easily comparable to Saddam Hussein, Hussein, vicious, murderous tyrant, supported up until the day he was overthrown by the people now in office. Every single one of those guys was overthrown from within. Uh, why didn't it happen to Saddam, even though they were being supported by the United States? Uh, why didn't it happen to Saddam Hussein? Well, you know, the people who, the Westerners who know Iraq best have been talking about this for years. They don't enter, you don't read about them in the American media. You can't find the names in the New York Times index. You can read them in Canada or overseas, England or elsewhere. Uh, namely, the administrators of the uh, uh, UN uh, uh, so-called oil for food programs, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponek. Uh, both of them resigned in protest against what they called the genocidal effect of the, of the uh, uh, program, the sanctions, and the fact that they were destroying the civilian society and strengthening Saddam Hussein. And they've been pointing out for years that the, the way to overthrow Saddam Hussein is from within, just like every other gangster that was supported by the people now in Washington. Can't happen if you destroy the civilian society and you strengthen the dictator and you make people dependent on him. The main effect of the sanctions hasn't harmed Saddam Hussein and strengthened him, but it's kept him from being overthrown. Otherwise, chances are he would have been gone the way of Ceausescu and the rest of them a long time ago. But an internal revolt is unacceptable to the United States, just as Saddam's leaving Iraq is unacceptable, as they announced at the summit meeting. The reason is very simple. It doesn't leave the United States in charge. It leaves the Iraqi people in charge, and that's no good. Uh, at the Azores summit, Bush Blair announced it explicitly, that even if Saddam Hussein goes, we're going to invade anyway, because we have to impose the regime of our choice, not the choice of the Iraqis, whatever that might be. That's critical. Well, that gives you some tasks for people here. Uh, one is to ensure the least harmful outcomes, whatever can be done. Another is to try to 
uh, get to the point where we can provide reparations to Iraqis, and if we can't get to that level of honesty, at least to provide aid that they can use to rebuild the society the way they want to, and not the way somebody in Crawford tells them to. Uh, the next task after that, and Carl Rove just told you this morning what it is, as if you didn't know, uh, was to face the next challenge as the new norm in international relations is put into effect somewhere else. And now that it's been established by this action, you want to know what it is? Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, James Woolsey, who was former head of the CIA under Clinton and apparently is going to get a position in the new administration, uh, he uh, gave a speech in where I'm going to be tomorrow in Los Angeles, uh, where he um, informed the crowd cheerfully that uh, we're now in the midst of World War IV. There's World War I, World War II, Cold War was World War III, now we're in World War IV, uh, and we got to go over the countries that have been attacking us. Uh, he named two. He said Iran and Syria, fascist regimes of Iran and Syria have been attacking us, and we finally realized it. Uh, so now we have to go after them. Uh, so maybe they'll be the next ones. Or another possibility is the Andean region, which is now surrounded by U.S. military bases, plenty of soldiers there, uh, and it's a big energy-producing and other resource-producing region, and it's kind of out of control. So that's a possible target. And you can think of others, but you can be pretty confident that one or another is going to come along. There's no other way to uh, continue with the strategy that's announced and they intend to implement. Remember, these are people who barely hold political power by a hair, you know, and the only way they can hold on to it is by terrifying the population. Uh, that means there are things that can be done. You know, people don't have to be terrified by imaginary demons. That's an educational and organizational task, uh, one that's not easy, but certainly within the means of people are concerned. Well, let's go back to last September. Uh, what, right after it comes October, uh, Congress declares that Saddam Hussein is a threat to our existence, uh, like Nicaragua, and authorizes the government to use force. Uh, something else happened in October, something extremely important. Uh, there was a, a meeting, a retrospective meeting in Havana, 40th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, the people who attended were key participants in the October 1962 missile crisis from uh, Russia, the United States, and Cuba. Uh, and there was, uh, there was a discovery that actually shattered them there. It turned out that the world was, they knew it was a very dangerous moment. Arthur Schlesinger described it as the most dangerous moment in history, which isn't an exaggeration. But they found out last October just how dangerous it was. Uh, it turned out that the world was literally one word away from uh, probably terminal nuclear war. Uh, it turns out that Russian submarines were under attack by U.S. destroyers. They had uh, nuclear-armed missiles. Uh, two of the commanders assumed that uh, there was a global war going on and called for the missiles to be sent off. If that had happened, uh, there would have been a massive response by the United States, wiped out half of Russia, they would have responded out and wiped out the rest of us. 
and we wouldn't be here to talk about it. Well, why didn't it happen? Uh, one submarine commander uh, countermanded the order. Uh, the Russian rules required three commanders to authorize nuclear weapons. Two agreed and one refused. That's why we're here. That's how close it was. This is after a campaign of international terrorism that led to the crisis, aimed at regime change for the kind of reasons I mentioned, all very much in the news last October, very imminent, uh, barely reported. I don't know how many of you know about it. Uh, it was barely mentioned. Who cares if the world was one word away from nuclear war after a U.S. campaign of international terrorism? Uh, what followed was an increase in the terrorism and Dean Ashison's explanation, which I already read to you. Well, there are more important things than survival, like uh, profits and power. Uh, that's what we learned from this. Immediately after this discovery, barely reported, uh, a week later, October 23rd, uh, there was a meeting of the uh, United Nations uh, Disarmament Commission, that's essentially the General Assembly. They passed two extremely important resolutions. Uh, one of them reaffirmed a uh, 1925 treaty that bans uh, biological weapons. The second was a resolution that uh, uh, extended a 1967 treaty banning the use of, uh, uh, banning the militarization of space, preserving space for peace peaceful uses. Well, why those weren't reported, those resolutions. Had a friend do a database check, weren't reported. Why? The United States voted against them alone. The United States and reflexively Israel voted against reaffirming a 1925 ban on biological weapons and a 1967 treaty, now extended, uh, to ban militarization of space. Well, you know, that's really dangerous, uh, both of them, and very urgent. Uh, shortly after, but not reported. Right after that, the U.S., uh, the Bush administration killed a, a bioweapons treaty that was under negotiation, uh, stunning the Europeans. Last minute, the U.S. stepped in and says, no, we're not going to allow any discussion of enforcement mechanisms for years. The reason, got to protect the secrets of U.S. pharmaceutical uh, corporations. It's much more important than banning biological weapons. Uh, probably there's another reason. It's very likely that the United States is carrying out uh, illegal uh, tests of development of biological weapons. A lot of scientists guess that that's the reason why they haven't been able, they claim that they haven't been able to find the source of the anthrax attack. It was traced back to a U.S. federal laboratory, remember. This is not like disarming Iraq. It's a U.S. federal laboratory. Uh, they can't, they claim not to be able to find the source. It's kind of hard to believe. Uh, but it may be, and it's been speculated, uh, by the Federation of American Scientists and others that probable reason is that they're concealing some kind of weapons development program that they don't want to expose. Well, maybe, maybe not. We ought to find out about it. Uh, right after that, the U.S. went on to infuriate even its closest allies in the World Trade Organization, uh, first of all, by taking a very extreme stand, uh, violating trade rules. Uh, notice that that's another reiteration that's still following the script of the Reagan years. 
There's a lot of talk about free trade, but they were the strongest opponents of free trade in the industrial world. In fact, the Reagan administration uh, was the most protectionist government in post-war U.S. history. They virtually doubled the protectionist barriers in the United States. The uh, GATT, which is the predecessor of the World Trade Organization, according to their analysis, Reaganite protectionist measures were three times as high as other industrial countries. Very damaging to world trade, but the most powerful state in the world does what it wants. And they're doing it right again. Uh, The Bush administration has broken some new barriers and protectionist measures, but much worse than that, and this really did amaze and infuriate Europe and others, is just a couple of weeks ago the U.S. intervened to prevent efforts uh, which had been agreed to by the other industrial powers, uh, efforts to provide uh, inexpensive drugs to uh, people uh, who are dying of uh, treatable diseases, uh, AIDS, uh, malaria, tuberculosis, and others. Uh, That's tens of millions of people who are dying from these diseases, and the U.S. intervened to prevent uh, access to inexpensive drugs, again, because uh, huge profits for uh, heavily subsidized U.S. pharmaceutical corporations are a much higher priority. Uh, Well, you know, it doesn't make you popular. Uh, the U.S. also continued to under, and is continuing to undermine international efforts to reduce threats to the environment, which are by now universally recognized to be severe and uh, maybe a threat to survival. Uh, the pretext for this barely conceal uh, service to pretty narrow sectors of private power. Uh, if you take a look at uh, the journal Science, the main, the journal of the American. Uh, Association for Advancement of Science, the lead editorial about a week ago, was a bitter condemnation of the Bush administration, the climate change science plan, which does absolutely nothing, it doesn't even, does nothing to stop what just about every scientist who pays attention recognizes to be a very severe threat. Well, again, profits are more important. Uh, all of this engenders fear and uh, hatred of the leadership and maybe ultimately hatred of the society, which was regarded as just too dangerous. Uh, That's going to lead to uh, efforts at uh, deterrence. Uh, How do you deter a country which has overwhelming military power? Well, you know, every international affairs specialist can tell you and does tell you by proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and proliferation of terror. Uh, That's what the Bush administration is going to achieve, as I say. uh, Osama bin Laden must be cheering somewhere. Well, go back to that uh, intelligent Martian. If he has some concern for the human species, he might be watching all of this with some amazement and asking uh, how long it can be that people who live in a free country are going to allow it to go on. Thanks. Noam Chomsky speaking live at Mackey Auditorium. You're hearing it on KGNU Boulder as it happens at 8.28 on a Saturday evening. Professor Chomsky will take some questions from the audience now. Uh, I'm told that there are a couple of mics around, so if you'd like to go to them and we can 
turn this into a discussion. I see two, and I think there's another one up there somewhere. I don't. Anybody see one up on the balcony? I can't see there. Well, let's just go to these two, and then up there, somebody can find it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you start. Okay. Uh, hi, hi, Noam. Um, I wanted to ask about um, if we accept, and as I think we should, the sort of call to action as privileged citizens. Um, what your estimation would be of uh, two possible actions we can work for within the kind of narrow political spectrum? Um, you've talked tonight about the uh, what was done by this administration and by the some of the same people during Reagan Bush, and you've also criticized Clinton, but not so much tonight. And I'm wondering uh, how much how important it would be to try to work for the change from the Republicans to the Democrats in the next election, which is, you know, it's a measurable change versus other possible political activities like, you know, campaign finance reform and that kind of thing. Well, it depends what the Democrats are. So I didn't talk much. I actually did talk about Clinton. So the sanctions that have destroyed Iraq and strengthened Saddam Hussein and made the population dependent on him and prevented an internal revolt, that's Clinton. Right. Okay, uh, and there's plenty more. Uh, take another example, which is often another domain. Uh, take a look at Brazil. It's very interesting. What's, it's informative what's happening there, very informative. Uh, Brazil uh, has a ma huge popular movement, left popular movement, nothing like here. They succeed, and they're very effective, the Landless Workers Movement, the Workers' Party, and others, the biggest uh, popular movements in the world and the most effective. They managed to elect their own president. Pretty impressive guy. Uh, now, just, but just take a look at what's happening and think a little about history. There's good reason why nobody studies history. It just teaches you too much. Uh, but take a look at recent history. Recent. Uh, Forty years ago, Brazil had a populist president. It was during the Kennedy administration. Not like Lula, but, you know, mildly populist president. Kennedy administration didn't like him. Uh, they organized a military coup to overthrow him. Uh, it happened to take place shortly after the assassination, but it had already been prepared by the Kennedy administration. It was hailed by Kennedy's ambassador as the greatest uh, victory for freedom in the mid-20th century, while the generals were torturing and murdering. It imposed the first kind of neo-Nazi national security state in Latin America. That's the beginning of a plague that spread right through the hemisphere, ended up in Central America in the 80s. Pretty awful. Uh, the, uh, uh, we ought to know all about it. This time, they're not calling for a military coup, although Lula's a much more threatening leader for them and has a mass popular support, organized support, that Goulart back in those days didn't have. How come? Well, there's two basic reasons. Uh, for one thing, the activism of the last 40 years has changed this country as well as Brazil. People here wouldn't accept it anymore. Then nobody cared, you know, nobody knew, didn't pay any attention. But a lot has been done in the last 40 years. It's a much more civilized country. It'd be very hard to carry that off now. There's a second reason. Here comes Clinton. They don't need it. Uh, back in the uh, 1960s, 
the only way you could prevent a populist movement was a military coup. Now you can do it by uh, the mechanisms of uh, what the world calls neoliberalism, uh, financial markets, the, f the international financial markets can strangle them. Uh, capital can flow out of the country. Uh, what's called by economists a virtual parliament of investors and lenders can make the actual decisions over what happens in a country. Its own voters are irrelevant. The virtual parliament does it. Yeah, that's uh, thanks to the uh, what's called globalization, the measures that have been introduced in the last 30 years, primarily well, many of it under much of it under Clinton, which means that. Uh, so like when Lula went to Davos at the World Economic Forum and made a good speech about how we have to, you know, work on overcoming poverty and all kind of nice things, they cheered him. They thought, oh, that nice, you know, because they know he can't do a damn thing. Because the minute he makes a move, the virtual parliament will strangle him. Uh, okay, a lot of that is thanks to Clinton. Uh, those are other ways of controlling people. I mean, you know, they might have alternatives, but they'd have to be almost revolutionary by now. That's what the global justice movements are about, trying to prevent the virtual parliament from destroying uh, what's left of democracy by uh, transferring power into the hands of the virtual parliament. Okay, we ought to know about those things too, and plenty of people do. That's why there's a big global justice movement. That's Clinton too, and there's more. Uh, going back to your question, it's really hard to say. You know, it depends what the alternatives actually are. Uh, that's why I was quoting uh, uh, Dean Acheson, Kennedy administration, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the planning commissions in 1940. Okay. The spectrum is pretty narrow. It's not to say that it doesn't exist, and sometimes choices within it are important, but far more important than that is changing the spectrum. And the way you do that is by the kinds of activism that have changed the country. That changes the spectrum with, within which choices are going to be made. Now, ultimately, you want to go beyond that, but for the short term, that's, I think, what has to be done. Uh, given that our government is the most powerful government in the world right now, uh, how could we uh, best utilize that power to affect change, both in terms of, like, pertinent issues like nuclear pro proliferation and in terms of uh, changing human rights. Uh, and I guess most immediately I'm thinking about uh, where do we go from where we are now with North Korea, uh, given that we've already made the mistakes that we have in the past? Well, first of all, I think the way to deal with the overwhelming military power of the United States is to dismantle it, not to use it. And, uh, it's a threat. Yeah, so uh, take, say, nuclear proliferation. Okay, that's dangerous. In fact, nuclear weapons are among the most likely things that will do us in. You know, it's pretty close. Came very close in '62, and that's not the only time. Uh, what do you do about nuclear proliferation? Well, there is a treaty. It's called the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, which uh, obligates the nuclear states. That includes us to carry out good faith efforts to eliminate nuclear weapons. Okay? And nobody follows that, and nobody's going to follow it unless the United States takes the lead. The United States is one of the main violators of the treaty. 
It's right through Clinton, incidentally. And one way to uh, reduce the threat of nuclear weapons is to uh, observe the provisions of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, another way to do it is to uh, pay attention to the Security Council declarations uh, that are selectively used to justify the war on Iraq. They don't only call for disarmament of Iraq. They call for, there's a paragraph which is very rarely quoted, uh, which calls for disarmament of Iraq as a step towards uh, elimination of weapons of mass destruction and delivery systems in the region. Okay, that's specifically referring to the U.S. offshore military base in Israel, uh, which has overwhelming, has hundreds of nuclear weapons and totally overwhelms anyone in the region in military force. That's what they're talking about. That's another step. Uh, another way to do it is to follow the recommendations of the high-level congressional and other committees, which have pointed out that the major threat of uh, nuclear weapons right now, at least, is what they call loose nukes. You know, Russia or Pakistan or somebody with nuclear weapons, tens of thousands of them, in fact, that are kind of fall getting out of control. Well, you know, there are small programs to try to do something about that, and they're work but they ought to be huge programs. So there are many problems about uh, nuclear weapons. And, re and another thing to do is to stop encouraging countries to develop nuclear weapons as a deterrent to Arab power, which is what they're going to do. All right, let's get to North Korea. I don't know what you're calling mistakes exactly, but the, right, the, the countries of the region have a, an approach that they want to follow. Uh, they want, and we should be following their lead, I think. South Korea uh, in the lead, and Japan and China basically agree with them, that this is a serious problem, very serious problem, and it has to be dealt with through diplomacy uh, and through moves to somehow integrate North Korea back into the system, which is not a trivial matter. Uh, the framework agreement, this is one thing that Clinton did which was right, of 1994, if it had been implemented, would have uh, taken steps, it was taking steps towards that. Well, that's been reversed. And we ought to go back and we ought to follow the lead of the South Koreans on this. It's dangerous. Now, right now, the danger of North Korea is not uh, nuclear weapons. The danger is, the reason why the U.S. isn't attacking North Korea is because they have a deterrent. The deterrent is conventional weapons massed artillery which can destroy Seoul in five minutes. You know. uh, I'm sure that at the Pentagon they're working on techniques for uh, you know, precision-guided uh, weapons that can somehow, maybe tactical nuclear weapons that can somehow take out that artillery. Uh, but until they can do that, they can't attack North Korea because it has a deterrent. And in fact, the U.S. is teaching the world a very ugly lesson now. It's telling the world, if you want to prevent us from attacking you, you better have a deterrent. If you're defenseless like Iraq, we'll go after you. Uh, if you're North Korea, which is a much worse tyranny and a much greater threat, but you have a deterrent, we're not going to go after you. Uh, you know, it may not be the headlines here, but everybody in the world understands it. It's very evident. Uh, that's uh, really bad. Uh, behind that, there are other things going on. So the, you take a look at that region, Siberia, China, Japan, Korea. Uh, it's, it's, it's an integrated region. It has tremendous resources, mostly in Siberia. 
like energy resources. It has countries that need those resources, Japan, China, South Korea. The natural development, and one that's beginning to take place, uh, is some kind of integration in which the energy and other uh, uh, material resources of Siberia are going to be used by the surrounding countries which are carrying out industrial development. Uh, the U.S. is very much opposed to that, does not want an integrated region to develop that will be out of control of U.S. global power. Uh, that's part of the background for what's going on in the Gulf, in fact. Uh, so, yeah, that's in the works. Uh, there's a lot to be concerned about if you're really thinking about the future. North Korea is a threat, and the way to deal with it is uh, by following the lead of the people who are right there, uh, like South Korea and the other countries. And we can do a lot to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons by following our own treaty obligations. That'd be a good start. Uh, even uh, radical extreme status such as Bush and Company um, must share a basic sense of self-preservation along with the rest of us. But it seems to me that they too, um, at a very personal level, will suffer the likely consequences of their own actions. Um, a dangerous course that they've initiated. Uh, do these people believe that they'll escape by magic or by divine intervention? Yeah. Or uh, does their extreme devotion to ideology prevent ordinary logical thinking? And well, it's logical. And, and finally, is it important for us or not to understand what's going on in their minds if we want to change the world? No, I don't think it's minor importance. The reason it's of minor importance is that this is close to a historical universal. Now, it happens that by now the stakes are much greater because the means of violence are so much greater. You take a look at history, it's been like this forever. You take a look at the history of war. I mean, very often, maybe like half the time, uh, wars were started by countries who got destroyed. They're willing to, the leadership was willing to take the chance. You know? I mean, and it's not just recent. You know, people talk about the uh, 20th century as the most horrible century ever, and in some ways it was. But you look at the uh, wars in Europe, the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, it wiped out about 40% of the population in Germany. Now, they kept at it. You know, the leader for the leadership was just more important. Or take a look at uh, take more recent times. Uh, it, go back to 1950, okay? There was one potential threat to U.S. security. No nearby. I mean, the U.S. had enormous security. You know, controlled the Western Hemisphere, controlled both oceans, controlled the other sides of both oceans. Uh, never been a, as secure a country, but there was a potential threat. The potential threat was, uh, was only potential then, was uh, intercontinental missiles with thermonuclear uh, warheads. Okay. If anybody had been concerned with the security of the United States, they would have tried to avert the development of, those, of that technology. And very likely the Russians would have agreed, and not because they're nice guys, but because they were so far behind they didn't want the technology developed. Uh, McGeorge Bundy, who was uh, Kennedy's national security advisor, they wrote the authoritative history of all of this and had access to you know, all the internal documents and so on. He points out in his history that he cannot find any document which suggests that anybody even thought about it. 
you know, that they even had a plan to, or a thought about trying to avert the threat that the only serious threat to the survival of the United States. And the reason is you just don't think about that. You're interested in short-term power, profit, and gain, and the fact that it might uh, destroy your country is kind of secondary. Uh, and that goes right through history, you know, except the, only, the main difference now is that the stakes are much higher, much higher. But the reasoning is pretty constant. So is it important to think what's in the minds of these particular guys? Yeah, maybe at some level, but it's more important to recognize that, you know, within a lunatic framework, decisions are made which are pretty rational. It's the framework that's lunatic. I mean, you could say the same about environmental destruction. You know, it's a, it's, you don't know how far off it is, and nobody knows exactly what will happen, but and now it's universally recognized that it's extremely dangerous and that the system, in fact, is kind of nonlinear. That is, a small change might lead to a huge effect and so on. It could happen any time. That's known. Is anybody doing anything about it? No, because it's much more important to have short-term profit. Well, within us, and in fact, if you think about what you're taught in your economics courses, that's right. You know, it's rational within a framework of thinking that's pretty much accepted. Uh, people are supposed to be um, rational wealth maximizers, right? You're trying to maximize your own wealth. Okay, that's what you're supposed to be if you're rational. Well, uh, and the market, if it works perfectly in theory, is supposed to respond to the inputs from the participants. So your votes are your dollars, and your goal is maximizing your wealth. Okay, here's a simple question. Uh, how many votes do your grandchildren have in the market? None. You know, they don't vote in the market. Uh, therefore, their interests are valued at zero uh, in what's called rational behavior. So therefore, it's entirely rational to destroy the possibility that they'll, of a world in which they can survive uh, if you can have more shoes. You know, it's essentially what it comes down to. It's a kind of a rational decision with a framework of complete lunacy. You know? And there's a lot in history that's like that. Now, we should be concerned with those lunatic frameworks much more than what's in the mind of some person who's making decisions within them that may be pretty rational within a accepted framework. That's really important, I think. Mr. Chomsky? Oh, uh, is there somebody up there? I can't yes, really see. Thank you. If you had to read direct, excuse me, we'll be back. Could you wave an arm or something? I can't see. <laughs> if oh, you okay. had to recommend four or five publications that you think provide unbiased and accurate reporting, what would you recommend? Outside of KGNU, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sound dismissive, but I really think it's the wrong question. Nothing is unbiased. You know, everything is presented from a certain point of view. Uh, if you're honest, you make your point of view clear. If you're dishonest, you pretend you're objective and so on and so forth. Uh, and then uh, it's, really, it's really up to you to decide what you think is uh, telling something that sounds reasonable to you. 
And you really ought to be triangulating. You know, you look at different things and see how the world looks from different points of view, and then you make your own decisions. It's just as if you're a, you know, you're a chemist working in some problem in chemistry. There is nothing that gives you an unbiased point of view. That takes work, and it's a lot harder when you uh, are trying to deal with human affairs. So, I, I mean, I know what I think is important, but it's really up to you to decide what you think is important. I mean, I, for, for example, I learn a lot by reading the Wall Street Journal. That's why I was quoting it. I mean, I can't stand what, you know, we disagree on every imaginable topic. Uh, but if you read it, you can learn a lot about, uh, first of all, what's happening, because they have pretty honest reporting. Remember, they're reporting for the business world, which has to have a semi-realistic uh, picture of what the world is like. Uh, and uh, you also learn what's being thought about in centers of power. That's important. Uh, I don't say that's the only thing you should read. I mean, I think you should read Z Magazine, too. But uh, from then on, you've got to decide yourself. You, um, you, well, I, I'm next. You're next. Yeah. Okay. I lost track. And I'm not going to miss this opportunity. It's, I've been waiting for a long time. You mentioned that the next region that it's going to be in the eyes of the United uh, States. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. You mentioned that the next region oh. uh, could be the Andean region, that okay. you know, the United States is going to go propagate the uh, democracy and freedoms that we... Like we've done in Latin America yeah. for a century, yeah. I, I would like you to, uh, to give us... Uh, Bolivia in the last five years, and I'm a Bolivian... Uh, I was born in Bolivia, but I'm a U.S. citizen now. Uh, Bolivia in the last five years has discovered quite a bit of natural gas, and it's uh, probably that in the next five years we will uh, get close to the... Uh, uh, to the U.S. and uh, reserves in the American continent. And there's a quite a bit of opposition about a project that has been taking place. The, the government's trying to implement a project that is called Pacific LNG, liquefying Bolivian natural gas and, and exporting it to Southern California. There's quite a bit of opposition about that project from local people because it doesn't uh, benefit, it's not going to benefit uh, Bolivia in any way. If you know anything about that, if you could give us a little bit more details. Mm -hmm. And also, I have a request from a lot of civic and uh, organizations in Bolivia to invite you down there to uh, um, give us an idea about the, uh, the devastating consequences of the American free trade that the U.S. government is trying to propagate all over South America. Well. Uh... I, I, I mean, I, you probably know more about Bolivian resources than I do, so I won't answer. But I, I doubt that the resources are on that scale. I, th I think they're significant, but I doubt that they're on the North American scale. However, it is true that if you – I mean, there are intelligence projections. Uh, a document you ought to read, it's public, uh, it's called uh, – what the name? Global – It's in the year 2000, the National Intelligence Community, that's the CIA and the rest of them, published a projection for the next 15 years. If you want a reference to it, send me an email. It's got a website. Uh, or you can get it under the CIA website if you look. Uh, and it's a long, detailed projection of what they expect in the next 15 years, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, parts of it have to do with this. Uh, they describe uh, the Andean region. They don't mention Bolivia, well, except that insofar as it's part of this region at the periphery. But the Andean region, they say they expect to be one of the main sources on which the U.S. will rely uh, for its energy requirements. Uh, not the only one, but one. Uh, and uh, it's 
that's why I mentioned that it's a possible target, aside from the fact that it's out of control. Uh, Bolivia, as you know, is almost out of control. Came very close to electing a populist uh, president named Woodha if it hadn't been for violence. Uh, there's a lot of opposition in Bolivia to the uh, so-called drug war, which has done a lot to do with drugs, but it has a lot to do with driving people off the land and things like that. Uh, and it's been a disaster in Bolivia for the population for almost 20 years now. Uh, alternative development programs that have been talked about haven't been realized as they haven't been anywhere else. Uh, and it's pretty bad news. And, so, you know, a lot of a lot of tension and violence. Uh, the U.S., as I mentioned, has military bases all over the region and undoubtedly is looking for you know, their plans to go further, including Bolivia. Uh, as to the free trade agreements, well, you know, there's one region where they've been implemented, uh, North America, okay, Canada, United States, and Mexico, uh, and that's NAFTA. Uh, it's po opposed by the populations in all three countries. It was implemented over the objections of the populations of all three countries. It's one of Clinton's other achievements. Uh, it uh, required a tremendous media campaign to prevent people from knowing about what was happening. I mean, to this day, ten years later, the official position of the labor movement has not been allowed expression. Right? Uh, a lot of denunciation of the labor movement, but their own position, which was pretty reasonable, wasn't allowed expression, still isn't. Uh, the population is still opposed. Uh, back in uh, the, at the Hemispheric Summit in, what was it, April 2001 in Quebec, uh, the, uh, that was supposed to be the summit that was going to establish the free trade agreement for the Americas. Okay, and, they were going to, and NAFTA was the model. Everyone read the headlines. It's all about how magnificent NAFTA was. Now we have to extend the benefits to the hemisphere. Well, here's another propaganda achievement for you. Uh, the two major organizations, pretty well-known organizations, the leading human rights group in the world, Human Rights Watch, and the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, is one of the major you know, think tanks that does regular economic analysis, uh, both of them published major documents on NAFTA timed for release at the summit. Uh, Human Rights Watch dealt, their um, document dealt with effects of NAFTA on labor rights in the three countries. Uh, Economic Policy Institute document had experts from the three countries uh, describing, discussing in detail the effects on working people of NAFTA in the three countries. Uh, had a friend do a database search on that, and it wasn't mentioned in the United States, except for one op-ed in a small town newspaper. Uh, well, why? Because Human Rights Watch concluded that NAFTA had been harmful uh, to labor rights in all three countries, mostly Mexico, which is the most vulnerable, and the Economic Policy Institute uh, give a detailed analysis in which they concluded that it's one of those rare uh, agreements which had been harmful to working people, which means the majority of the population in all three countries, uh, most harmful in Mexico, which is the most uh, vulnerable. Uh, and uh, you don't want people to know that when the headlines are talking about how marvelous NAFTA is and how we have to extend it to the hemisphere. But if you read those reports, you get a pretty good assessment of what the effect of 
so-called free trade is, and it's not free trade. That's uh, propaganda. It's a very special form of inter international integration which uh, gives rights to investors, not to people. So under, say, NAFTA, um, one of the provisions of NAFTA, like the World Trade Organization, uh, is uh, uh, that uh, corporations are permitted to claim national rights. So GM can go to Mexico and claim the rights of, a, uh, Mexi of Mexican businesses. What happens if a Mexican of flesh and blood that tries to go to New York and claim the rights of an American person of flesh and blood? You know, don't have to bother asking. Uh, these are, that's just only one example of special rights that are given to private tyrannies that people don't have. Uh, when NAFTA was passed, you know, it was implemented in 1994, there was another legislation implemented in 1994 by the Clinton administration. It was called Operation Gatekeeper. Uh, it militarized the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. That's an artificial border, like most borders. It was established by conquest. The United States conquered half of Mexico. Uh, and the border has been pretty porous in both directions. You know, same people live on both sides. They've been moving up and back. Uh, Clinton understood that uh, when NAFTA is passed, uh, you have to block the movement of people. Okay? Free trade, if you go back to Adam Smith, is based on free movement of people. You have to stop that. And the reason is because they anticipated an economic disaster in Mexico that they were going to call an economic miracle. Uh, and it was going to mean there would be a flood of people from Mexico fleeing to the United States. And they got to block that, so they militarized the border. And hundreds of Mexicans have been killed since then trying to cross the border. It's one of the effects of NAFTA. But these are not free trade agreements. They're agreements which provide... You know, which are carefully calibrated to be a mixture of protectionism and liberalization designed for the interests of those who are designing them. That's not very surprising. You know, the people who are designing them, mainly corporate sector, are designing them in their interest. Uh, it includes very highly protectionist measures and, a lot of, and the kind of liberalization that will benefit them. But they're not free trade agreements, and uh, NAFTA at least, uh, appears to have been harmful to the majority of the population in all three countries. There's no particular reason to think that if you extended the hemisphere, it's going to be any different. Before I, before I leave, I, I have to convey the, uh, the message of some of the people that wanted to invite you there. And I know you're booked for the next two years or three years, but can I contact you somehow and I, maybe we can discuss if you could do something? Or, because they want to have you there and they want, they want in to Bolivia. In Bolivia. Yeah, I have a... One of my many thick files of invitations is from friends in Bolivia. Uh, how how can I contact I'd like, you? You can just email me, but all I can do is add it to the file. Okay, how, yeah. where do I get your email on the web? That's oh, the obvious one. Just my name, Chomsky, at mit.edu, educational institutions. So yeah. just what you'd guess. Thank you. Yeah. I'll do that. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> KGNU Boulder. But I, I have to tell you that I'll probably have to send a form response. I mean, I get hundreds a day, and even spending four or five hours a night, I can't really respond. We'll keep at it. But I, so, so a lot of them have to say, if it's an invitation, you know, just all I can do is file it. Uh, what's to prevent uh, Mr. Bush from carrying out a plan 
which I believe is part of his national emergency policy, and that is to cancel the 2004 elections. I don't, yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, these guys are pretty bad, but I don't think that's in the cards. I mean, I think that probably would lead to a rebellion in the country. Unless, you know, with an exception, if some major terrorist action takes place, all bets are off. You know. And I, I don't say that they're trying to stimulate one, but the policies that they are pursuing are increasing the likelihood of terrorist operations, and they know it. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they read their own intelligence reports. They read CIA reports. They read what strategic analysts are saying. And they're almost uniform in saying that the policies that are being pursued are likely to increase the threat of terrorism. And uh, the threat is severe. You want to know how severe it is? I recommend some reading. Uh, there's a high-level task force, Hart Rudman Task Force, organized by the Council on Foreign Relations, which just came out with its report a couple of months ago on um, some title like terrorist threats to the United States. Uh, like everyone else, they said the threats are going to be increased by the attack on Iraq. Everybody says that. Uh, and, uh, but the threat, then they run through a, you know, it's kind of like a cookbook for terrorists. I mean, it has a, a series of threats which I didn't, hadn't even thought of. Never, but, and, they're, and they're very extreme. So, for example, they point out, and they apparently unstoppable. Uh, so they, I forget the numbers, but they point out that a huge number of uh, containers, most of what comes into the country uh, is in containers, you know, container ships. I think it's tens of millions a year, some extremely high number. And those containers are uninspected. Okay, anything could be in them. You know, furthermore, there's no way to inspect them. Uh, they come from three or four places around the world, uh, Singapore, or Amsterdam, or maybe Rotterdam, and some other place. And if you tried to inspect them, you would back up uh, commerce, you know, for months. Uh, you have trucks clogging all of Europe, you know, waiting to be inspected. I mean, the whole economic system would collapse, especially if it's based on on-time production. So there doesn't seem to be any feasible way to, to inspect them. Any one of them could have a nuclear weapon in it. It'd be put together in some, uh, you know, New York hotel room, and it goes on and on with threats like this. I mean, if you're going to try to create a world where people want to destroy you, they got a lot of ways of doing it. Uh, and if a terrorist attack takes place, I think all bets are off. This is a very frightened country anyway, uh, and if anything happens, it could go berserk. I lost track uh, of where we are. Sir, uh, Donald Rumsfeld in 1992 issued a, uh, a brief, and also Paul Wolfowitz, who is now the watchdog over Colin Powell, uh, issued a memorandum in 1998 basically outlining the current national security policy. Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote a book in 1998 called The Grand Chessboard to where he outlined the war against Afghanistan for the precise purpose of establishing military bases in Central Asia to where we could dominate the entire region from there. Um, just to follow from the other side, William Fulbright wrote a book entitled The Price of Empire uh, just before he died in 1989. 
He's the one that called the Senate hearings on uh, Vietnam, Santo Domingo, the treaty, uh, missile treaties, etc. With uh, and perhaps the last statesman that our country had. In view of all the evidence, public and private, about a direct plan to basically establish a world dictatorship, can you see any way that we can somehow either, uh, well, replace the capitulationism or the, or the compliance of the Democratic Party? Is there any way that we can have statesmen come again through the democratic process in this country? Well, you know, that's part of the reason why I gave a couple of examples going back to 1940. Yeah, all, everything you say is true, and these policies were announced in the words I quoted back in, the ni in 1940. Uh, they were announced even more clearly by the Kennedy administration. That's why I quoted Dean Acheson. That's as liberal as you can get within the existing spectrum. They're all over the place. Uh, the uh, um, PNAC, what are they? The, I just forget what it stands for. The Wolfowitz Group Project for the New American Century. Yeah, uh, they've come out with proposals. I think that's what you're referring to. Uh, yeah, these are all over the spectrum. Uh, you can easily find them. Uh, they have never been declared openly as national policy until September 19, 2002, but they're all over. You know, they go back to 1940. It's the first one I know when the U.S. was beginning to perceive itself as a potential global power. Uh, how can you change it? You have to change the climate of opinion in the country. That sets constraints on what leaders can do. Uh, and uh, ultimately it can change the structure significantly. But if the public is marginalized and apathetic and passive and you know, pursuing, driven to pursuing marginal concerns, yeah, then they'll do what they like, Democrat or Republican. Uh, I think it's, it, it, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting to read the PNAC documents, but they don't tell you much. I mean, that goes back to the planning record as far back as you like. We have to change the country, and it can be done. You know, it's a very different country now than it was 40 years ago, and the, the leadership knows it. Let me just cite an interest, a piece of information, which again, everyone ought to have. Uh, when the first, uh, when the Reagan administration came into office, these are the guys in office now. The first thing they intended was to carry out a major war in Central America, and they tried to follow the policies of their model, John F. Kennedy. They tried to do in Central America what Kennedy had done in South Vietnam. They followed it very closely, but they had to stop very quickly. Because although Kennedy could get away with it, uh, they couldn't. As soon as they started, there was an overwhelming popular uprising, opposition, and they backed off. They turned to clandestine terror instead of direct invasion, like Kennedy and Johnson did. Uh, because there was just too much protest. The country had changed. When the first Bush administration came into office, uh, just as they came in, every incoming administration uh, gets a, uh, a review of the world situation from the intelligence agencies. It's automatic. We never find out about it, maybe 30, 40 years later. Uh, this time, a part of it was leaked, and it was an interesting part. It was a paragraph on uh, uh, how to... Uh, fight wars with what they called much weaker enemies. And it
It's understood you don't get involved with anyone else. It would be not, not prudent. But in, it said in the case of conflicts with much weaker enemies, we have to defeat them decisively and rapidly because otherwise political support will erode because it's very thin. Meaning if you're going to go after a much weaker enemy, you first have to present them as some huge threat to your existence. Then you have to get rid of them very fast because if it drags on, public isn't going to accept it. It's not like the 1960s when the public easily tolerated a massive war of aggression in South Vietnam, then all of Indochina, and protests didn't develop for years. You know. Actually, there's an interesting article about that in the New York Times today showing how little is understood because history is so totally erased. There's a front page article today, read it. It's about how there isn't any protest now of the kind there was during the anti-Vietnam War movement. If you read the article, you notice the first date mentioned is 1970. Okay, that's after eight years of war. You know, eight years of extensive activism and engagement to try to develop protest against the war. Yeah, by then it's true there was a large-scale anti-war movement. Now there's a massive movement before the war even starts. Uh, that's because the country's changed. You know? uh, but they. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think the reporter is concealing anything. She's learning what she was taught, you know, and what she was taught is that you're not supposed to teach people that there were eight years of you know, it was actually less, about six years of war before it was possible to build up uh, a significant protest movement, and then it did develop and it stayed. That's why the Bush administration has the. Uh, internal directives that it has. Well, that's uh, what you can do. You can change the country. And that's uh, going back to the PNA, AC and Brzezinski and the rest of them. Yeah, they have those thoughts and plans and they make them public. You can find out what they are. Uh, they go back as far back as you want to go. Uh, they'll be implemented unless the population drives policy in a different direction. And the only way to do that is by dedicated activism. It's no other secrets. Uh, well, where are we? Right here. Okay. If the um, if the reaction to that the war has been so fast this time, um, maybe there will be a strong reaction in 2004, and I won't feel at all guilty for voting for another Ralph Nader. Um, no, I would love to have a clone of you in my refrigerator. <laughs> that means I'd be frozen to death. I was today walking around Boulder. <laughs> so that every time I opened it up and was just astounded from something I've read and just baffled, that you would be there with a voice of reason. <laughs> let, let me tell you. A little cold, but. Let me, let me tell you something. In the 1980s, if you wanted to learn something about Central America, uh, the place to go was like a church in Kansas or something like that. Uh, there was a mass-based popular movement that developed of people whose names you never heard of, 
who did totally new things in the whole history of Western imperialism. Uh, tens of thousands of them went to live with the victims. Uh, many of them are still there to help them. It never happened before. Those people knew more about Central America than certainly than the CIA. Um, I mean, I learned from them when I went to visit them. That's the way you find out things. Uh, or you part of some meaningful organization, you can learn about the world. It's really hard to do it by yourself. But when you do it with other people, it's, you can get a tremendous amount. Um, now, my question. Um, <laughs> well, today I was at the, our monthly meeting of the World Federalist Association where we have this teleconference um, throughout the United States. Uh, um, and one of the handout things they had said, I was wondering, Noam, if you know about this. Last summer, Congress passed a law that would allow the president to invade the Netherlands with military force. That's true. If the International Criminal Court even hears a case against an American. That's true. In Europe, it's called the Netherlands Invasion Act. Uh, here it's not reported, but uh, yeah, it's true. And it was uh, author it was signed by the executive, so it's law. Um, Democrats and Republicans yeah. voted for that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, kind of my question for you is: Is there any um, way that you could foresee that that um, George could be prosecuted? I, I understand that in this in this country, he has to be not in this country. He has to go outside of this country um, since we haven't ratified the ICC. But if he were somewhere else, why couldn't someone just See, arrest him? These are questions of power, not law. You know? uh, there's, uh, the, the U.S. can do it because it's overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, nobody can do anything about it except people inside the United States. You want to change things, you've got to change them here. Nobody else can do it. I mean, I, I don't really think, and, you know, in Europe they describe the Netherlands Invasion Act as a kind of a joke, you know, a sign of how crazy everybody is across the Atlantic. They don't really expect The Hague to be invaded, uh, but uh, they know that they can't touch an American or even threaten a one uh, because the threats are just too great. Uh, the, the, the extreme, the fanaticism of this is really remarkable. So take the latest country to be admitted into the United Nations, East Timor. I mean, barely exists. You know, a couple hundred thousand people. Those are the ones that survived the U.S.-backed uh, Indonesian assault. Uh, when they got independence, their first communication from Colin Powell, the moderate from the State Department, first communication was that if they wanted any aid from the United States, they were going to have to guarantee that they would never be involved with uh, uh, the International Criminal Court in, the in any case involving an American. I mean, the chance of some East Timor, you know, sending some American to the International Criminal Court is approximately at the level of our being hit by an asteroid tomorrow. But they're not taking the, you know, you've got to show uh, the fanaticism is so extreme that they had to sign that. Uh, and Europe knows you don't fiddle around with a 800-pound gorilla. You know, it can only be stopped from within.
I've just been told by my boss that we have five more minutes, so that's like one or two questions. Do you, do you consider uh, I don't tax resistance by Americans to be a, an appropriate means of expressing dissent and possibly affecting transformation in the government? Well, I mean, I was a tax resistor myself for a long time. In fact, I organized, tried, didn't work, tried to organize uh, national tax resistance back in 1965 uh, with a couple of friends. We really tried hard, didn't get very far. And I myself kept after, at it for about 10 years until I realized it's, you know, it's just not an effective tactic at that point. Uh, these are tactical questions. You have to judge, try to judge, is it going to reach people? Uh, if you carry out any form of civil disobedience, whether it's tax resistance or something else, you have to ask, you know, what are the likely consequences? I mean, you're not making a pact with God. Uh, you're trying to have an effect, you know. Say, well, what are the consequences going to be? Is it going to encourage other people to do something, say, because they'll see you're doing this? And right now, my own, you know, I, I don't have any faith in my tactical judgment. Yours is better than mine, I'm sure. But if you want mine, it's that it's probably not an effective device now. Frankly, I think the most important thing now is to change, is to do something about the fact that this country is so terrified that an unscrupulous leader can impose lunatic ideas by a propaganda campaign that lead to real dangers. Uh, it seems to me that's what we ought to be dealing with. We ought, we ought to also be dealing with the fact that really critical and important things are just not reaching people, like what happened last October, say. There's of extraordinary importance, just one example. Unless that stuff is known to people, uh, we, you're not going to be able to organize and have an effect. And that means breaking through media monopolies, information control, indoctrination, all sorts of things. Those, dealing with that seems to me a lot more important than things like tax resistance right now. But it's your guess. Thanks. Um, I really appreciate your coming, and I hope to see you back in the area soon. But uh, my question was very similar to hers, actually. But um, I wanted to know your opinion, given all the recent events of the past few years worldwide, the opposition to some of the decisions the Bush administration has made, um, the WTO violations. Uh, if this invasion in Iraq continues and becomes drawn out and you, know, you can just go on to imagine what could happen next, you don't think there's any chance for uh, an international crimes court to, to, to bring charges against officials under the Bush administration? At this point in time, for virtually none, because the U.S. is just too powerful, and there isn't enough internal opposition. Uh, frankly, I'm amazed that the war has gone on this long. I, I thought it would be over in two days, if you look at the relations of violent, means of violence, and I still suspect it's going to end very quickly. And. Uh, but, you know, if it does drag on, there's going to be enormous protests, and there could be all sorts of things happening. I mean, right now there's tremendous uh, anger and hatred all over the world, and it's probably going to manifest itself in action. Uh, but I don't think an international criminal court is in the cards. And it doesn't seem to me it's our concern, really. Our concern is to change this country, you know, not to speculate about what somebody else is going to do. Yeah.
Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid this has got to be the last question, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, there's been a lot of discussion tonight about how to control military spending, and I agree. Yet on December 10, 1999, it was officially announced by James Baker on President Clinton's weekly radio address that Clinton signed a presidential decision directive which completely eliminated our nation's long-standing military defense strategy of mutually assured destruction and that the current policy was that this nation would quote-unquote absorb at least two nuclear strikes before we considered any kind of retaliation. According to the American Civil Defense Association, the Doctors for Disaster Preparedness and the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, our current Cheney-Bush administration has done nothing to reverse that policy. Um, would you consider this as dangerous or more so than continued proliferation? Is this a national yeah. suicide pact or well, an intelligent national defense policy? Yeah, I, I don't know about what you – I'm not aware of what you're describing, and it doesn't conform to what I do know. The Clinton administration position – was the they reaff Clinton administration reaffirmed the first strike position? It said the U it is that the U.S. will does maintain the right to carry out a first nuclear strike, uh, even against uh, countries that are non-nuclear and have signed the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. I don't think there's a chance in the world that the United States would ever absorb a nuclear attack without you know destroying everything. You know? I just don't believe it. You know? Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I remember you on the. Uh, thank you. Uh, just uh, to remind you that when I left my. The inn where I'm staying, there was a notice on the door that said everybody's going to lose an hour of sleep tonight. So I think we better say good night. <laughs> good night, Noam Chomsky, and thanks for speaking once again in a benefit for KGNU. You heard it live here on KGNU, a simulcast. Noam Chomsky speaking on the campus of the University of Colorado in Boulder at Mackey Auditorium. A sold-out crowd, a benefit for KGNU. Noam Chomsky spoke for KGNU's 10th anniversary, our 20th anniversary, and now again for our 25th anniversary. Thanks to KGNU's Evan Perkins and the staff at Mackey for making this live simulcast broadcast possible. And everything you hear on KGNU is made possible by the listener members. Our spring fundraiser is just around the corner. It starts next Friday, and we thank you for your participation and your continued support of Boulder County Community Radio.